And having said that, I'm going to multitask and go into the introduction a little bit of the Book of Esther. For some of you that haven't been here or visitors that are here, the Book of Esther has been an amazing experience for me to go through again. It's been timely in my own life and all the things that are going on in the church and the ministry and taking place. And you, you begin to wonder, oh my goodness, where is God? And I sure hope he's in these things that are taking place. In Esther, we see that there was a time of preparation when we looked at chapters 1 and 2. There was a time of testing in chapters 3 and 4. Testing. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves that not all tests are of the devil. Sometimes the Lord allows those testings, and he will even bring certain kinds of testings in our life just to build our faith, to equip us. You know, we are called to the army of the Lord, an army that should be filled with warriors for God. And to be a real warrior for the Lord takes testing, takes a faith, building up of our faith. And then we went into chapters 5 through 7 last week, and we saw where God began to intervene in ways that nobody could have ever predicted. No man could have orchestrated. It all was the providence of God interacting with his creatures, his creation, interacting with his children. And we see Esther and Mordecai going through things and being... being elevated to positions that could never have been orchestrated by man. Only God could have done it, and he did it through crazy things. He did it through some things that we would consider even ungodly. I mean, he took a a young virgin girl named Esther, and through this whole long process, she is forced to go in and sleep with the king, and eventually she becomes king. It's stuff that we look at and say, God, how can you use those things? We don't understand all of the things that God does. But he's always in control. And at the end of the book, chapters 8 through 10, we see the manifestation of the fullness of his deliverance. And as we look through these things, the the preparation, the testing, the intervention and deliverance, we need to be reminded that we are all going through some sort of process. And the ultimate deliverance isn't really going to take place completely until Jesus comes back. Oh, we... We experienced, as as, as sons and daughters of God, as people who have accepted Jesus Christ, we've experienced an amazing deliverance already. We've been delivered from eternal separation from God. We've been delivered from spending eternity in hell. We've been delivered from the power of sin and the power of death. So we've had an amazing deliverance. But in each one of our lives, we're going through things continually that require God's intervention. And I've been calling it the providence of God. And really the providence of God is simply the reality that we do not have a God who plays hands off. But we don't have a God who controls everything we do. We have a God who interacts with us on a continual basis every day, even when we don't realize it. And he's interacting in our lives and intervening in situations. And I challenged you last week to look back in your own life and see what got you here, what got you to that place we accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're like me, there's an amazing chain of events that you can't explain. And at the time, you really couldn't explain them. Matter of fact, you didn't even think about them. You either enjoyed them or you worried and fretted about them. But we kind of didn't focus on what God was doing because we didn't know God at that time. And all of a sudden, he brings us to a place where he begins to fulfill his promise. It shows his faithfulness. We sang about this morning. We're going to look at chapter 8, 9, and 10 very briefly, a little bit more at chapter 8 in these minutes that I have here. 
I'm not going to read them all, so Owen, you can kind of relax until I get down a little ways. But as you read through chapters 8, 9, and 10, chapter 8, you begin to see the deliverance where God's intervening in a very amazing way, but also in a way that some of us go, wow, there's sure a lot of blood letting going on. There's sure a lot of killing taking place. If you remember where we left off in chapter 7 with the evil Haman, the one who had caused the king to have an edict. And for those that weren't here, an edict of the king of Persia at that time, it was irreversible, irrevocable. You could not repeal it. Once the king's signet ring was marked on that thing, it was the law and it couldn't be changed. And Haman, through a little bit of deception and trickery, had gotten the king to put his signet ring, his signature on an edict that said, on a certain day, almost a year out, every single Jew was to be killed destroyed and annihilated, all in one day. And through a whole series of events, here we have a Jewish girl named Esther, and who I call her father, it looks like it was an adopted father, it was a relative, who are put in his place of all kinds of amazing authority. Haman hated Mordecai, if you remember last week. He had built a gallows, 75 feet tall, that he was going to kill him on. And he went to the king at that very day to ask the king's permission to kill Mordecai. Haman was the second most powerful and important person, so he knew the king would probably say yes. And through an amazing reversal, that same day, Haman gets killed on that gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And that's kind of where we left the story. In in chapter 8, we begin to see Esther coming before the king and pleading for her people. She does an amazing thing. The way she, we could probably learn a lot from the way that she appeals to the king. In chapter 8, verse 5, I believe it is, she says this. She goes to the king, who has shown her extraordinary favor in the past that you would have to review. But she says this, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and if the matter seems proper to the king, And I am pleasing in his sight. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in the king's provinces. She is going to the king, the most powerful man in Persia, and he's vile and evil. And she's going to him and asking him to reverse something that she already knows is irreversible. Her life has been on the line so many times, and it's on the line again. And the king, knowing it's reversible, reminds her that it's irreversible. And she says, here's what I'm going to do. He gives Mordecai his signet ring. He takes that ring off and gives it to Mordecai. And he says, here, go and do whatever you want to do. Go and do what sees fit with you. But remember, I cannot reverse that edict. So here's Mordecai. 24 hours later, earlier, they were planning to kill him on a 75-foot-tall gallows. And now Haman's dead from that very gallows. And Mordecai has got the king's signet ring that represents an unbelievable authority that Haman had the day before. And they write out an edict. And it says that they called all of the scribes together and they sat down. And Mordecai and Esther, and primarily Mordecai, wrote out an edict. And he had to, and I I think we see and we don't hear it explained at all, 
But I believe this edict was written by the wisdom of God alone. What do you do about an irreversible edict that every Jew is supposed to be slaughtered on a given day, specifically outlined in the whole kingdom, and you can't reverse it? Mordecai writes out, as you read chapter 8, he writes out an edict, and he puts his signet, signet ring of the king on the edict, and he sends it to all of the provinces in the kingdom. And the edict basically says this, I give all of the Jews the authority to gather together, to assemble together. And on the very day that all the Jews were supposed to be killed, I give all of the Jews permission to fight back and destroy all of their enemies. As a matter of fact, he says, to kill and destroy and to annihilate, just as Haman's edict had said. And then we see God working in the people. It tells us that all of the people of Persia, especially Susa, which was the capital city where they were located, was in fear of the Jews. As a matter of fact, they were in such fear of the Jews, it says even the Persian leaders, the princes, the military leaders, they all came alongside and were going to help the Jews. So a day that was supposed to destroy every Jew, the king had now given permission through Mordecai's writing this letter and the signet of the king being on it, that the Jews could fight back and kill every single enemy of theirs. And as you read the chapter in the chapter 9, you begin to read and you think, wow, there's a lot of killing going on here. But we got to remember something, and I think we see it made clearly, because even, even in the edict, it tells us that the Jewish people could take the plunder of war as their own. And as you read through the story, you're going to notice at least three different times where it says, They destroyed the people, but they did not take the plunder or spoils of war. They destroyed another group of people. They did not take the plunders of the spoil of war. And a third time, they did not take the splendors of the spoils of war. Why wouldn't they? Because it wasn't their war. It was God's war. God was the one fighting for them. It was God's idea. All the way through. We don't see God mentioned in the whole book of the Bible, but his fingerprints are all over every single page, every single action that they've taken. And this idea of assembling together. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. I believe I have a slide of that. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together or assembling together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, sometimes preachers use this scripture to encourage you to come to church. Don't go do this, don't go do that, come to church. And it's almost like it's just an attendance builder. It's way more than that. There's a purpose and a reason God says this. He says the enemy is going to stir things up. In Revelation it says, you know what? The devil's really mad and he hates the bride of Christ. And as the end gets closer and closer, he's going to get even more involved in trying to destroy the bride of Christ. That's us. And he will try to destroy every single one of us individually. Our families, our marriages, everything. He'll try to destroy everything. And that's why the writer of Hebrews said, do not forsake the gathering. 
We have a right and a responsibility to gather together. Why? So we have great church? No, not really. To encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to lean on one another, to build one another up. Because we may be in a time of reasonable peace, but somebody else that we love as a brother and sister in Christ is in a holy war against the enemy. And they need us. We need one another. Do not forsake the gathering, especially as the end draws near. You know, however near the end is, it's about 2,000 years closer than it was when it was written. Could be any time. The devil is, it, you know, how many times do you say, God, I've never seen anything like this in our culture. Can you believe the way things are? You listen to the news and you just walk away and you're just depressed. How much darker, how much more evil, how, you know, to get to this place where good is called evil and evil is called good. We're there. We're living in it. We need one another in the body of Christ. And as we go on, we begin to see this amazing reversal. And I want to just focus on this for a little bit. In Esther chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Remember, in in Esther 4.3, when Haman had written that edict, his words were, Depressing, to say the least. It says, in each and every province, in verse 3 of chapter 4, the command went out, and there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. And look at 8.16. For the Jews were light and gladness. That's because Mordecai's edict had been written. And it says there was such gladness and joy and honor in every province where it was read. There was joy and There was gladness and joy for the a feast, it, they were so excited. And let me ask you this question: What had changed? Nothing, except there was another edict. But reality was, before that edict came out, they were facing extinction and extermination on that day that had been declared. They're still facing extinction, annihilation, on that day that was declared. But another edict had came. And it reversed their attitude, their confidence completely. What had changed? Their perception. Their perception of what was taking place had changed completely. That's all that had changed. They were rejoicing. They were celebrating because perception changed. Nothing else had changed yet. For all they knew, there was going to be one whale of a war on that day. How many of us have had something like that happen in our own lives? Where we're seeing circumstances and we, we're at this place where we're perceiving what's going on a certain way and all of a sudden waves of guilt or fear or, or worry or depression just come on over us. And then all of a sudden, whatever's out there in the circumstances don't change a bit, but all of a sudden we get a revelation by the Holy Spirit that God loves us and that he's a good God. There was a day a number of years ago, I was sitting in the office out here, and and I get a call from Cindy. And she says, Mike, Luke has had a car accident. And the last thing I heard as I was on the phone with the nurse who was one of the first to arrive was they're trying to get him out of the car using the jaws of life. A truck had ran through a stop sign on on a highway, and Luke had hit him going 60 miles an hour. The car went right behind the back wheels and underneath the back of the truck. When we saw the car, finally it was leveled at the windshield all the way to the back. There is no way anybody should have lived. Cindy and I got in that car. And I drove really fast, headed towards Granite Falls because he was in the Granite Falls Hospital. 
I'd like to tell you my faith was soaring and my confidence was high, but it wasn't. I was trying to imagine in my mind, what am I going to do if my son dies? What am I going to do if he's crippled for the rest of his life? What am I going to do if he's a vegetable? Nothing we had heard was real encouraging. And then I get a phone call as I'm speeding through Cottonwood. And I'm asking the nurse, how is he? Well, we can't tell you anything. What? I'm, a, I'm his father, and my, my, his mother's here, and we're going crazy. I can't tell you anything. Let me transfer to the nurse's station. The nurse picks it up, and her first words were, Mr. Nelson, slow down. You're going to be happy. Oh, my gosh. Nothing changed. The accident had occurred. Took the jaws of life to get him out of the car. The top of the car was cut off all the way to the back back seat. But my perception had changed completely from a few simple words. Mr. Nelson, slow down. Might have been prophetic. (laughs) Slow down. For us in our lives, there are always circumstances going on around us that are not necessarily pleasing. And we look at them, and our perception of what's taking place and the outcome of that particular thing can destroy us if we let it. But that's why we need to be reminded of the favor of God that is upon us as his children. We need to trust him no matter what. That doesn't mean the outcome couldn't have been totally different. But if my perception changed, if you all know Luke's story, when he was a baby, he had seizures. We took him to the doctor to find out why he was having seizures, and they came into the room and said, well, he's either got water on the brain, a tumor, or there's nothing there. And I want a door four. But you know what? In that, we had peace somehow. As it turned out, he'd had a stroke in uterus. That part of his cerebellum didn't even develop. We got all the bad reports from all the brilliant doctors, and I don't mean to be sarcastic with that. They're brilliant doctors. But we didn't believe their report. Our perception was, you know what? God miraculously showed, told Cindy she was pregnant and were to name him Luke. We stood on that. Perception changes everything. What's going on in your life? What is your perception of what's going on in your life? And what is your perception of the God that we serve? How great is our God? Does he love us or doesn't he love us? Does he promise that he will work everything together for good for those who believe? Even though if we look at any of the events individually, they make it look horrible. We go through tragedies, and if we just look at that tragedy, it looks horrible. I may not survive it. How can I survive it? How can I go on? God says he will work everything together. He will bring it all together. And it's like watching a movie and trying to figure it out as you're going through it. I watch Mission Impossible and try to figure it out every step of the way. It makes no sense. But at the end, it all comes together. That's how we need to look at God and when he's working in our lives. Boy, I got a whole lot more I was going to say. But I want to just encourage us. I hope you've been encouraged. I have been blessed and ministered to by this study of Esther because, you know, there are so many things that go on in our daily lives. And we are so busy and we're so trying to just get through it that we lose perspective. We get our eyes on the circumstances and we start to trust the circumstances more than we trust God. 
I wish we could all say, well, when we trust God, everything turns out just the way we want, but we all know better if we've lived life at all. You know, and the, the psalmist wrote, David actually wrote it in book of Psalms, chapter 16, verse 5 and 6. If you know David's story, he went through a real, real time of trying, testing, and battles before he ever became king. And God had prophetically spoken that he was going to be the king. And he went through this time where he, the king Saul was trying to kill him. He was hiding in caves. It just went on and on. And he writes these words. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. We could paraphrase that and say, Lord, it looked like a mess. It was chaos. It looked like I was going to die at times. It looked horrible about in every way that I can imagine. And yet, you worked it out for good so that my portion, my destiny is secure. The lot, it's the same word we see in Esther for purr, the lot was cast and drawn, and that lot in my life, it's like the lot of your life came together finally. He said, the psalm is saying, you, God, have revealed my portion, my destiny. When it looked like chaos, it looked like terror, it looked like all hell was against us, you brought me to this place. You've drawn the boundary lines of my destiny. And in that place, I find great joy. Father, I pray that as we go through these things in life, that you bring back to our remembrance how you work all the time. You know everything about us, everything we're going through. That you are at work. And you are at work putting together this amazing picture of our destiny. Lord, I pray that you give us grace when we don't see the whole picture. I pray for you to give great grace when we're going through those dark valleys, those places where you promise never to leave us nor forsake us. God, I pray that our faith and hope and trust is in the reality of who you say you are in the word, that you are faithful, you are trustworthy, and you are a good Good Father. Father, I pray that you would bless each one as we go our separate ways. I pray you would draw us in a greater and greater ways to your word that we may know you better. Father, that we would know you, your character, your heart, and your love for us. Father, I pray that we would understand in greater ways the favor that is upon us as your children and the authority and power we have in the name of Jesus. And it's in that name I pray. Amen.